0: Hi everybody, so joining me today we have Claire Lehman, she's an Australian writer and the editor and founder of the online magazine Quillette. Hi Claire, how are you doing?
1: Hi Ricardo, good thank you, thanks for having
0: me. It's a pleasure. So, um, okay, for the first question, I guess uh, until now no one asked you this, at least from the, from the interviews I picked up. Uh, because before you started Quillette, you were in college and you studied, at least for some time, psychology, right? Yes. So, uh, was there any particular reason for you to to decide to study this discipline?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, I, I did an English degree when I first went to university as a 17-year-old. Um, and I did three years of that, but it was, um, how can you say, postmodernist in its orientation. And so I had to make a career uh, plan change. So I always wanted to be a, an English scholar, I wanted to be a professor of Shakespeare.
0: Mm.
1: But when I went to university, and this was in the very early 2000s, uh it was already quite post-structuralist in its orientation and you had to just look at texts through um present-day political questions like how is gender constructed you know if you read something like othello it was how is race constructed and you couldn't look at the characters in the texts and Mm -hmm. what i was always interested in in novels and plays, particularly Shakespeare, was the psychology, and I thought that Shakespeare was uh, a proto-psychologist, right? So that's why I liked him, and I thought, well, if they're not giving me that in English, I'm going to just go and study psychology, and so I, I shifted over, and um, I took it from there, and I still really enjoy psychology. It's just that I got older, and I started a family, and it just wasn't compatible with me doing a master's which required um very long hours of unpaid clinical work i couldn't do that so
0: yeah Uh, and was that one of the primary reasons for you to decide to uh, to get outside the the course to to stop the course there the master's degree and to start quillette or was there anything else going around for you to to take that decision
1: yeah, I mean it's not a decision I came to lightly, and there were a range of different factors. Um, I would just say that I didn't, I wasn't enjoying my course, and that had mo- had a lot to do with how it was run, and I didn't like the people running the course. They were very um, authoritarian, you know. You do lots of arbitrary rules and no explanation. why the rules were important and I just I'm not a person who can handle being told what to do constantly Mm -hmm. with any real reasoning behind it so I I just I don't and you know and it's why I've started collect because I have to be my own boss because I can't just be um, told what to do constantly by a person who I don't respect basically
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yep. that's a good segue for the next question because uh, I don't know if this is too intrusive or not, but uh, since I've talked with Norman Sandridge who works at the uh, Hellenist Center at Harvard and he studies leadership in ancient uh, philosophers and ancient thinkers and so on, and I had, uh, I tried to have the discussion with him about what would be the leadership traits according to modern psychology and so the big five and so could i ask you please uh, to tell us if you know what are uh, your classification in terms of the big five personality traits and since you say that you don't like to follow rules without a reason perhaps we (laughs) there's something about it there
1: yeah yeah so uh just roughly i'm high in openness to experience. So if we take the big five, which is Mm -hmm. um, extraversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, openness to experience, and neuroticism, Uh I'm very high in openness to experience. I'm somewhere in the middle for extraversion and neuroticism. Mm -hmm. So I'm not Particularly extroverted and I'm not particularly neurotic, but I'm not extremely low either on those scales. Um, I'm somewhere in the middle on conscientiousness. Conscientiousness is a tricky one because I'm very industrious, so I work very hard, but I'm also messy and disorganized and disorderly. So those two don't often go together. But they have, that's happened to me. So I, I work really hard, but everything's a mess, basically. Um, and I'm not good at always having the same space for, for an object. Like I will move things around and um, so I'm disorg- I'm disorderly. And then I'm low quite low in agreeableness. And that's <laughs> yeah. So I'm disagreeable and that's unusual for a woman. It's um, yeah. more common for men to be low in agreeableness. And I think um, I think being low in agreeableness is important for leadership because you have to be able to look at the status quo, whatever it is, and say, no, I'm not doing that. And you have to be able to rock the boat. So agreeable people don't like to rock the boat. They like everything to be smooth and they like to please people. And you can't... Um, I mean, it's an extremely important trait, particularly when it comes to parenting, especially little children. But if you're trying to do anything important in the culture, you have to have a bit of disagreeableness in you to be able to uh, deal with critics and just say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it like that. I'm doing it my way.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm yeah th- that's interesting that you say that because uh, Nor- uh, because i ag- I, w- I agree with you, but Norman Sandridge didn't agree with me because I mean one of the traits that he points out as as the um, ancient think- that the ancient thinkers talked about was philanthropy and so he associates philanthropy with the person being agreeable, but I mean. Uh, I guess that, as you say, when we have to get things done, you can't be too agreeable. Otherwise, you will take other people's opinions uh, and the vast majority of people's that are around you, uh, their opinions into account. And then in the end, you can't get anything done, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, of of course, philanthropy um, is important, but some of the you know, if you look at the guys in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. um, who are extremely successful, I mean, they have been ruthless in climbing to yeah. the positions yeah. they have. And and I don't mean ruthless in an exploitative sort of psychopathic way, but yeah. in terms of their vision, they are, you know, focused. And it's about shutting out crit- criticism, basically. That's how I see it. I don't see being disagreeable as... You're intentionally exploiting people or harming people, but it's just about shutting off all of the doubt and the criticism. And then once they get into a position where they're highly successful, um, some of these guys give away a great deal of money. And so they're not, it's not about being selfish or psychopathic. It's just about being confident in yourself is, ha- is how I see it. mm
0: mm-hmm. Yes, because I I also talked with him about this, uh, about um, Paul Bloom's work on empathy and and trying to separate cognitive empathy from emotional empathy. And I mean, uh, I guess to be a a philanthropist would have to be uh, empathic in some way, but uh, it's better to be, uh, to espouse cognitive empathy, that is to know how other people in their situations are dealing with life and if they are suffering or not, but not to be to be emotionally overloaded and to feel yeah. what the other person feels, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think that in uh, relationships and interpersonal situations and with your family, and if you've got children, you want to have that, Emotional empathy, yeah, um, and that's what it's designed for. If we're talking about ev- in evolutionarily evolutionary terms, that uh, that emotional empathy is for your family, and but if we're talking about politics and you're making policies up that are going to affect thousands or millions of people, you want the cognitive empathy. You want to be able to switch off, um, you, you know. You, your judgment is going to be skewed by that one single case of a girl being um, you know, harmed. And if you, if you design a policy incorrectly, it can have un- unintended consequences, which can lead to a great deal more of harm down the track. So you have to be able to think in statistical terms, which requires cognitive empathy, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly, and so would you say that for a man to be disagreeable and for a woman to be disagreeable is the same thing in the man uh, and the woman? The, the, uh, do you think that it, exp- that it is expressed the same way uh, in both well, um,
1: I haven't thought about that question. That's interesting. And it, it's, it, it sort of depends on what other traits a person has, you know. Um, I mean, we have to also acknowledge that uh, criminals can be very low in agreeableness, but they they're also low in um, generally criminals are also low in conscientiousness. So they have no um, often have no sense of duty or honor, um, and high. Well, sorry, that that's not true. A, a, a personality profile that might predict criminality is being is having a low IQ low conscientiousness and low agreeableness and so that's not a good combination you don't want to have those three things low IQ low conscientiousness and low agreeableness now if someone's got a very they're gifted with a very high IQ they're high in conscientiousness um, they're reasonably low in neuroticism but they're disagreeable I mean that's they, that person if they if they choose a goal that is worthy and that can benefit society that person can achieve great things um, I haven't thought about sex differences in disagreeableness between men and women and I think that would all be dependent on what other traits the person has um, certainly that you can have there are plenty of women who have, have dark triads traits, and I think, um, yeah, so Peter Johnson, who studies the dark triad, he might be able to help you with that question. Yeah, he would know about the sex differences. Mm.
0: Yeah, Uh, and that, what you talked about, about being low in agreeableness, low in conscientiousness, and low in IQ, that's perhaps what Adam Perkins talks about when he refers to the welfare trade, (laughs) right? Uh, People people that have those characteristics and that don't want to follow with with what society wants for them to do and to comply with. Uh, If they end up uh, uh, depending on welfare, then they tend to... Stick with it and don't do anything with their lives. Right?
1: Yeah, I have have not read Adam's book um, from cover to cover, but I I think I think that's the general argument that you can have a cluster of traits that go together, which are very um, that just in, in they they become antisocial. You know, when you have this grouping, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And so uh, to uh, to get back to Quillette again, because I mean, I find the website interestingly clean in terms of not having any kind of publicity there and so on. Uh, it, it, the fact that you don't have publicity, wh- was that a conscious choice something that you really decided to do or simply something that happened?
1: Well, advertising doesn't make any money. I mean, it makes a tiny amount of money. So if I had ads on Quillette, even though I get um, uh, between 1 million and 2 million views a month, I would make a couple of hundred dollars through advertising. So it's really not worth it when you consider that it ad, ads are ugly and they um, they slow down the The loading speed of your website Mm -hmm. so why would you make your website ugly and slow it slow down its loading speed for a couple couple of hundred dollars it's not it's just not worth it Um, and we have never had a a clickbait model where we need to get millions of views to um, to sustain ourselves we just don't have that model and our readers don't respond even if we did publish clickbait our readers would be like what is this we're not we're not reading that
0: <laughs> so. yeah yeah and that's great so but but another question that i wanted to make is that do you think that because uh, i think that in terms of uh, of audiovisuals, i'm doing something that goes more or less along the lines of your, of what you're doing with with my channel uh, uh, and uh, i feel personally that w- when i'm thinking about people to contact to try to have interviews with them, uh, that I have a kind of bias in terms of, oh, if I know about this discipline, then I'm interested in having someone to talk about this. and if I don't know much about that, I don't feel it is so. Do you think that uh, in the case of Quillette and yourself, Uh, when it comes to publication, that it could have there some sort of bias in terms of what are your intellectual interests?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's no secret that many of our contributors uh, have training in psychology Mm -hmm. and it's no secret that I created it because I wanted to challenge, I wanted an outlet to challenge the dominant blank slate narrative that is prevalent within the media in most Western nations. And that's the real reason I created it, because um, I've read a lot of literature in the behavioral sciences and what I understand to be... um, the scientific consensus on several issues is simply not reflected in the media, um, and I there's a there's a big gaping hole, and I think general you know the intelligent newspaper reading public would like to know some of the some of the these um, consensus topics such as sex differences or intelligence or um, you know, j- just general, just general trends that are investigated in these scientific areas. I mean, people want to know about it, um, and and so I just I saw a gap basically, and I just wanted to fill that.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, I would agree that bias, but it's,
1: we don't see it as a bad bias.
0: Yeah, I'm not saying that, that all biases are uh, are bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> um and so, uh, recently, you started Expanded a little bit more. C- could you tell us a little bit about that, the recent expansion you you have, and uh, perhaps something that could be coming around in the future?
1: Uh, well, it's moving slowly, but we, so there's a group of three of us now. There's myself, there's Jamie Palmer, who's, extremely talented writer from the uk he's um an editor and jonathan k who is a canadian editor with a great deal of experience he's worked at the national post and he was formerly the editor of the walrus before he left underneath um a storm over cultural appropriation i think he defended cultural appropriation and the canadian literary scene sort of blew up as they do on twitter and called for his blood and he had to resign um and he's come on board quillette which is fantastic for us because he's he's a great writer great editor um so we Yeah, so we are expanding slowly, but because we rely on patronage, um, we have to take things incrementally. We can't just scale up overnight um, because I don't think, I think if we tried to do that, it wouldn't be sustainable. And I don't don't want to ruin what we already have, which is a grassroots kind of community of like-minded people. And it's always, we're always going to be fairly niche, I think. And um, so we're just, we're just growing slowly and the patronage is increasing slowly which is great and we're very thankful to all of our patrons and um but i think over the next over the coming year you will see higher quality pieces being published on quillette um some bigger names are coming on board in terms of writers um and you'll just see a more polished professional um, product from us and we just want to focus on getting the product right and who knows what will happen in years ahead. Mm-hmm.
0: Right uh, and, and in terms of uh, themes that are explored in Quillette because I've read your piece, you, the interview you did with Clay Rutledge for Psychology Today and there you told him that Um, you were interested in having articles about for example animal rights effective altruism uh, progressive policies to help young parents uh, at work and so on Um, are you managing to to get uh, people to write about these other issues that you, you would like to have covered on quillette
1: yeah so we recently published an article um, presenting the case for veganism by an effective altruist called Jesse Rees. Um, and we've had a few articles on animal rights, which I think is a very interesting topic. Um, we haven't had many articles on progressive redistributive policies, which I'd like to have more of. I mean, I'm sort of perceived as right wing because I criticize identity politics and feminism and a lot of um, l- sort of lefty craziness on universities. But I'm not really, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty centrist and I'm pretty open to a lot of um, what you would call traditionally left wing policies in the economic sphere. Um, I think. Like I believe in the welfare state and so on. Um, so I, I'd actually like to publish more pieces defending the welfare state or um, arguing for different ways to design the welfare state to benefit people better. Um, but we've sort of got this niche where we're, we look mostly at uh academic sort of philosophical ideas and psychology and that kind of thing and a lot of the articles aren't political at all i mean they're just debating an idea but yeah i definitely i definitely would like to get more what i would say progressive content but not the sort of crazy social justice warrior like i that that stuff is not that they have their own publications for that but that i i still think there are a lot of sensible leftists out there and i would definitely encourage them to write articles and send them into quillette and we we'll, we'll publish them for sure
0: yeah and that's uh, the uh, another interesting part of it the political side of it because i mean because nowadays uh, people that want to defend the sciences usually talk against the great enemies of the sciences that, <laughs> that unfortunately come mostly from the left, uh, mainly, <laughs> in the, mainly in the form of postmodernism, so uh, don't you think that it's, um, it's much more uh, it's, mu- it's much easier to get people uh, that are center or right to center to talk about these issues than people from the left? Unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And I I think what I observe is that there are a lot of, I would say most people who identify as left or leftist, left wing, are sensible and reasonably moderate. But it's just the noisy minority who have these crazy postmodernist and, um, you know, just bizarre ideas. And I think the sensible leftists are um, timid basically and are cowards and don't have the balls to say this is stupid and crazy and you're ruining the perception of our wing of politics, um, stop doing it. I think, I think there's just a lack of courage and, you know, it's sad because we need a left wing. Like we need, you know, you don't just want rich conservatives running the show uh, just putting in self-interested policies you know every election and and just amassing their power and wealth I mean nobody wants that but the sensible leftists so far have been doing a really bad job at um keeping their radicals and their crazy people um on the fringe basically and they're just they're just complacent and I yeah, I before that reason I can't I can't I ever I can't identify as a leftist because they just they've just done a bad job and anyone with any kind of dissenting thought or heterodox thought is excommunicated anyway. So even if you wanted to call yourself a, a leftist, they wouldn't have you. Um, so it's definitely easier to get people who who have remove themselves or identify in the centre or centre-right or libertarian, it's definitely easy to get those people on board with sort of novel um, philosophical arguments and uh, talking about things in a rational, uh, different way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, And and wouldn't you say that there are a lot of people out there that are really intelligent uh, and classify themselves as classical liberal, but then when it comes to, let's say, madness that is happening on U.S. campuses or, and, and things like that, that they tend to think that it's not really that important what's happening, even though it's, uh, we also have things going on in terms of politics and public policy, uh, that they say something along the lines of, oh, we we already have things like these in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, and so on. And this is just something that comes and goes. And now it's in another, uh, another time of peak activity, let's say. But this this will this will eventually end, and, and they say it's not really that important. But, but uh, what do you think about, about that position?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, nobody knows, nobody can see into the future. We don't really know. I mean, you can say that nothing worse is going to happen, and you might be right, but you could also say that these kids who um, – disinvite speakers and think that free speech is trivial and who create safe spaces and trigger warnings. You could also make the argument that they're gonna graduate soon and are going to go into elite professions such as the law, the media, teaching, and they're going to be in positions of power. And if they don't understand the importance of basic, the basic principles that underpin liberal democracy, you could make the argument that liberal democracy is going to be in very big trouble if the next generation of elite professionals don't even understand what free speech is for. Um, I, I mean, we have to be careful not to be too alarmist, but I would say that every generation has to have people who are going to stand up for the principles that make a, a liberal democratic society work. I mean, it doesn't just happen. It, it, liberal Liberal democracy doesn't just fall out of the sky and land on the ground. Like people have to build it, maintain it, preserve it, argue for it, protect institutions. And it's, you know, the responsibility of people like me and you and other people to do this preserving and maintaining and to... And for and to keep the people who want to tear it down out, um, and we might be successful, but we might not be, and we don't know. Like we we really don't know. So, I mean, I, I'm generally of the view that we're not alarmist, and there is a real threat. But that being said, I could be wrong, and other people could be right. But it doesn't change the fact that there's still there still needs to be individuals out there advocating for these principles. Every generation needs that.
0: Yeah. Um, And uh, have you already been the target of something coming from these extremists that put you in a situation where you were really afraid of what might happen after that?
1: No, I've never never been in a position like that,
0: no, never. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, <laughs> well, well had, that, that, that's had, great, that's great to know but uh, yeah please continue sorry
1: oh i've had um before my bio on twitter said that i was the founder and editor of quillette i think it just had editor and i had i've had people like tagging in quillette saying you need to fire this editor <laughs> <laughs> so i mean if i was if i had a a, a job where you know like I had a boss, maybe people would go after my job, but thankfully i'm not in that position, so they can't go after my job. I've never been afraid for my physical safety no mm-hmm. and,
0: yeah and'm I'm, cu- I'm, I'm curious what is the situation in Australia in terms of uh how the extreme left expresses itself in the, at the societal level and the political level and so on?
1: Well, we're lucky in Australia on many measures and um, we're lucky that we never went through the um, GFC, so we never had a big recession around 2007 and we don't have a hollowing out of the middle class the way mm-hmm. the US does and where lots of countries in Europe. So we don't have a great mass of disaffected youth who might turn to fascism or communism as a outlet so they're really lucky in that respect. We do have a creeping bureaucracy. so the, we've got the Human Rights Council in this country that you know they, they put out heavily biased skewed reports onto things like uh, about things like um, you know rape, rape culture on Australian university campuses and it's just like you read the, you read the study and it's taken a self-selected sample and, you know, the definition of sexual harassment is like making an off-colour joke and you're thinking, why are you trying to drum up drum up hysteria in this country? Like, why are you trying to import this grievance culture from America here? We don't need that, you know. I, I would say that we're really lucky. We have, um, if anything, Australians are quite, politically apathetic which is good on one level because you don't get the um the polarization that you get in other countries um on another level we can on another level we have a lot of busybodies we have a lot of busybodies in government um agencies who want to like uh enforce then their upper middle class norms on everyone else you know don't make off-color jokes, don't drink soft drink, don't eat this, don't do that. So we have lots of busybodies, and and that kind of reflects the fact that we were a penal colony, so the English sent convicts to Australia, but they also sent a lot of prison wardens. And so we have a whole class of sort of prison warden-like busybodies Trying to tell other people how to live their lives—that's probably the worst thing we've got here. We've got a growing, there is a bit of a risk. We've got a growing sort of um, white nationalist sort of uh, segment. I'm not sure how um, big they are, and I don't know if it's a bit of a beat up, but that's got to be that's got to be nipped in the bud. And I think, like I. The thing that worries me is that the hard left and the hard right feed off of each other. As yeah, soon as yeah. you, you get the hard left and then you get the hard right as a reaction and it, then it can spiral out of control. And that's that's scary, but I don't know if it's ever going to get to a critical mass in Australia.
0: I hope it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and because you work more at the intellectual level. Um, do intellectuals in Australia also have, uh, at least in the public sphere, these discussions between extremes in terms of opinion from both sides? or? or...
1: Uh, Australia doesn't have a very vibrant intellectual culture, unfortunately. It's always been that way. Um, we... We're more of a country that pays attention to sport than things like art and ideas, um, which is unfortunate for people like me. Um, so we, there's a bit of a, a lack of conversation, I would say, about big ideas, big political ideas. It's pretty thin on the, gr- on the ground, yeah. So it doesn't happen, no.
0: Uh, yeah, but don't feel alone because you're in Portugal. It's more or less the same. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> I know what I mean.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, uh, um, I think I don't have any other questions prepared. So, uh, I would just ask you to tell people where you uh, where they can follow your your work and mm-hmm. perhaps leave some fil- final remarks if you want to.
1: Okay, um, well, my website is quillette.com, so that's Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.com. Um, I write there on occasion. Um, you can find my own writing at my website, which is clairelayman.net. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Claire Lemon, so it's a funny spelling, C-L-A-I-R-L-E. E-M-O-N, And that's
0: about it yeah. <laughs> okay, well, Claire, I would like you to uh, I would like to thank you a lot for sparing a bit of your time to being here with us today. Uh, I really like the work you you're, you've been doing in at Quillette, and all the people that write there. So I think it's an excellent work and I hope you keep up with it.
1: Thanks for having me, Ricardo.
0: I appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. If you appreciate my work, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dissenter. Thank you.